Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with me, Phil Dobby, and Professor Steve Keane, author of the book Debunking Economics. And first of all, thank you for becoming a paying subscriber to the podcast. We appreciate your help and your support means we can continue to produce a couple of episodes each week for most weeks of the year. So over 90 episodes for a little over 50 pence each. So hopefully you see that as money well spent. And also make sure you click on the newsletter tab on the website and provide your email address so we can make sure we give you an update each time we publish a new edition. So let's get on with it. Today we're looking at monopolies. Uh, Steve is with me, of course. And Steve, I mean, they are, of course, the opposite of competition. That's why economists hate them so much. But they can be a necessary evil as well, can't they, of course? Well, there are some industries where you're not going to have a duopoly. I mean, for example, you're not going to have two sewerage providers attached to your house. Yeah. There's going to be one, okay? Um, and, and there are things, basically, when you're talking enormous levels of of infrastructure like that in a particular region, it's going to be the only particular one you can use. So if you want to get a train from, uh, say, what is it, Bath to uh, to London, you're going to be on South West Rail. Yeah. Uh, you can't get the Glasgow line to get to Bath. There's a slight difficulty there. Um, as the old Irish joke goes, that that's where you want to get. I wouldn't start from here. So uh, in that sense, there are some industries and some services which end up being what they call natural monopolies. And the element, the, the reality there is most of the time is those are the sorts of things that... Uh, you want to put pressure on their pricing, but they're the ones that the government uh, or, or some collective way of managing is far better than leaving it to individual because you then get the classic capability of both price gouging and, um, as you can tell from the state of British Rail, a total lack of the need to invest. Yes. Uh, and then that's that's the real danger of that sort of natural monopoly. And that's why um, in, in that situation, it's quite sensible to say, even working from conventional economic thinking, that there should be government ownership of those resources. Yeah. Um, rather than private. Amen. But uh, look, we'll talk about the railways uh, in just a second. But uh, first of all, um, I mean, we think of monopolies as monopolies within uh, their own individual industry, but they do face competition from other industries, don't they, of course? So let's take, for example, say there was only one company in the world that produced books and they said, right, well, we've got a monopoly. We're going to charge an absolute mozza for books from now on. Uh, And then, of course, we have digital as a substitute now, or people might just go, well, look, we're just not going to read anymore. Uh, We'll just go to the movies instead. So there is substitution, isn't there? So is there really anything that's a complete monopoly? Oh, yeah, well, that's the thing. There are are plenty of products where competition isn't restricted to the individual product you're looking at, the entertainment. Uh, you don't go and buy entertainment, you buy a form of it. So if one part does get, start, get too expensive, you start looking at another. And of course, the, the really interesting thing from the point of view of, uh, of market development is that that actually opens up options for other industries to develop. So yeah. if you think about, for example, um, you know, I think at one stage, Sony virtually had a monopoly on portable tape recorders. Right. 
Which didn't do them much good, did it? <laughs> no. So, I mean, it's telling us that sometimes monopolies might actually be a good thing because they force other companies to compete through innovation. If you have a, a market where there's uh, a whole load of companies all about the same size, all competing, uh, then there might be less room for innovation or less need for it. That's really the – that's what what I look at when I look empirically at the, the global – uh, market. I look at you know looking at particular markets. What what particular um, markets have done better than others in terms of delivering what consumers want and improving over time. And on that one, I have to nominate the computer industry. Mm. You know, and uh, if I go back thirty years, what state is the computer industry? In? Would you call it a monopoly or would you call it competitive? And the answer is you call it a monopoly because there was this big behemoth called IBM, uh, which had five uh, large rivals and nobody else worth speaking about. Now, of course, those five rivals, you and I are old enough to know them. You want to, you, can you do this a quick quiz? No, can no you tell I hate me, it when you do this yeah. to me. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me what they were called? Well, the five companies competing to produce computers... With IBM for 30, 40 years ago. Oh, uh, so Apple wouldn't have been around. Uh, oh, mate, listen, sorry, you've already failed this exam. Yeah, Hewlett-Packard would be one of them, presumably. No, no, uh, no, com no. Com Compaq? You're, you're not that much younger than me, are you? <laughs> Way younger uh, than you are. <laughs> okay, 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 little bugger. Okay, it's called The Bunch. Burroughs, Unisys, National Control Data, Honeywell, uh, uh, and you in, in National Control Data... NCR, Control Data and Honeywell. Right. Now, which of those five companies are you buying from today? Uh, well, you can still buy stuff from Honeywell. I don't think you can buy computers. I think they did that more in the solutions game, but not many of them is the answer. Yeah, they've, all, they've basically disappeared. IBM's still there, but in a much diminished and very different form. So that particular industry was upturned by firms that didn't even exist 40 years ago, the Apples and the Compacts and, and so on. And the reason that they came about was they could see these giant companies in the similar product market, product space of you know, computing in general, and they thought there's a lot of money to be made there, let's get in there and make some money, and they innovated a new form of product, which of course was the microcomputer initially, and then the, the mini computer, and then the microcomputer, and that's completely faced the cha changed the face of computing, and consumers are now benefiting from a level of performance which is just off the scale compared to what they, were, uh, they had 40 or 50 years ago with IBM, so that's that's an industry structure that worked extremely well. So you had one large monopoly, a number of oligopolies, uh, medium-sized firms around to try to take off the, uh, the the monopolist position by duplicating what the monopolist was doing with cheaper products. That was really the strategy of the bunch. And then a whole a lot of other small firms, which began with the, the most prominent being uh, companies like Osborne and so on. That's because Osborne has come and gone. And they decided to produce microcomputers, which was an entirely new product space. And out of that, we've got the modern industry. So that, to me, it looks like a pretty ideal structure. And when you graph that that sort of uh, market structure against the data, you're comparing the number of firms to the uh, percentage of the market they control, you get a straight line plot. Percentage of the firms in the industry and percentage of the market each of those firms hold, you get a straight line, which is called a power law. Right. So that's, that is a very natural phenomenon in, in uh, natural sciences as well. Power law distributions for the size of planets, power law distributions for the size of cities, power law distributions for the use of words in language. All this stuff is quite common. So one powerful to, you know, player... 
you're talking yeah. about one power well no 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 i'm talking about one powerful player and then a scaling down towards smaller players that if you plotted with a percentage of market share versus a percentage of the firms in the industry you get a straight line and it's 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 if you plotted without those percentage you get a what looks like an exponential curve right. this is called a power law and that seems to be the state at which naturally competitive and cooperative ecosystems which are both competitive and cooperative there's always this combination of symbiosis and competition in any ecosystem seems to generate that pattern so do you now, think do you is, think that gets recognized in competition law so we have monopolies not commissions. at all right. not at all because the unfortunately they've done economics and once you've done economics <laughs> You're either a rebel or a retard. I'm going to win some fans on that one, aren't I? <laughs> you are. Um, uh, but if you believe the stuff, you, still, you believe that all it comes down to is a large number of firms versus a small number of firms. Hmm. Small number of firms, bad. Big number of firms, good. That's really that's that's the pretty much the summary of competition policy, which comes straight out of first-year economics. And what it does, it reduces the whole question of com competition just to what price do you charge for an identical product? Now, there is no such thing as an identical product which industry. Was my, even which was my first point, wasn't it? That, you know, yeah. you, could, you could say, well, yeah. no, I'm, I'm not going to buy books. I'm going to buy something else yeah. instead. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So so the whole, they, they, they simplify away the interesting and important parts of reality. And what they're left with is a model that says that the only difference between firms is uh, whether they charge where the cost, the, the cost of producing the last item equals the, co the revenue you get for selling it. That's that's all it comes down to. Yeah. And they say that monopolies produce uh, where well, actually comes even it's even less than that. When you look at the theory properly, what they tell you is that in the competitive market, the price that they charge uh, is a, a, like a, a horizontal line. They can charge sell as much as they like at the market price. That's what a competitive firm is supposed to be about. Whereas a monopoly, each time it because it is the only seller on the market, each time it sells an additional unit, it has to drop the average price, so it sells less. And that's uh, that's the, what happens is the, the the revenue that it gets for selling the extra item is less than the the price it sells it for because it has to drop the price on all the products beforehand. That is the only difference the theory has between uh, what they call monopoly. And what they call competitive markets and not only is it completely ignoring all the interesting stuff that actually drives competition it's mathematically wrong because what they're telling you is that an individual firm can increase its volume of output without changing the market price but a single firm can't do that the reality is both of them can if you say market demand market demand increases as price falls then it doesn't matter who changes the output by one unit uh, whether it's a giant firm doing it or a, a massive one of the massive small ones it'll still add one more to the output level and drop the market price i've been through the mathematics of this i get reviews by neoclassicals they claim i don't understand their assumptions i think i understand them better than they do <laughs> um, but this this whole the whole basis of competition law is this fallacy that the more firms the better when the reality is simply the existence of a, of a rival is even a single rival is often enough to give you both the, a lower price than you get if there was a monopoly you could actually price gouge yeah uh, or and it also gives you pressure on those two organizations to innovate to try to take market share away from each other and it's innovation really that's the main benefit we get out of competition well, uh, rather which, than price exactly so let me give you another example then imagine you're the monopolies commissioner and you're presented with this scenario where you've got and let's talk about farms because i know economists like to talk about farms because they're not terribly complicated uh, you've got a bunch of farmers uh, uh, plowing their land and creating a crop 
and maybe say there's three of them and then one of those farmers says ah actually what i could do is make a bit more money uh, if i just buy a bit more land and uh, use it to create more of this crop so i increase supply as you were talking about well that's mm-hmm. collectively the supply goes um, um supply oh. increases uh prices go down but my share of that because i've got more of the land i get more share but but we mm-hmm. but the other farmers are worse off than they were before or i could say Oh, I've discovered this new whiz-bang way of uh, getting a higher yield by creating another crop. So I use all of my land now to create another crop where I get more money. The other, the, the first crop, there's less people producing it now, so, uh, so supply dwindles, so prices arguably go up. So we're all better off, but I have created this new crop for which I am a monopolistic provider. Now, you, Steve Keen, as the Monopolies Commissioner, has there been some wrongdoing here because I've created a monopoly and I've reduced the competition in the, in the, in the initial crop and prices have gone up, so people are worse off. But I've innovated. What's, what's the yeah. answer? No, the thing is, you, 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 that's capitalism. That's the answer. Yeah. That's the good side of capitalism. You want that sort of innovation to take place. And, and when you have a first mover advantage, often that inspires others to move into the same product space. And often there's no guarantee the first mover is going to succeed. So if you're looking at the moment at Tesla, for example, I, I seriously hope that company succeeds because they simply love their uh, their development ethos and everything that Musk is doing. I think is uh, I don't know what I want to work for the guy, but I think his uh, mm. approach to innovation and, and what the products he's producing is magnificent but there's no guarantee he's going to succeed now what he's done uh, is in the schumpeter speaks about this very well the first mover uh, makes it possible for others to get funding for their ideas as well so uh, the possibility exists that the first mover might not get enough cash revenue to overcome their financing problems and collapse uh, but the others will come along and in, in the product space they've generated and that's like for example in portable computers uh, i think you probably do you know the world's first laptop computer uh, no, it was probably an IBM, wasn't it? <laughs> well, you could put the IBM on your lap at the time when it came out. It would have crushed it. It would have weighed, I think it weighed 26 kilos. The first laptop computer was produced by that well-known firm called Dolmont out of that manufacturing and innovation hub we all know around the globe as Gosford. <laughs> right. Well, in Gosford, okay. Australia. Gosford, Australia. Wow. If you go online and look for a, a museum of laptops, you will find the first, the world's first truly powerful portable laptop computer was designed and built in Gosford, right. New South Wales. Where did that go wrong? Called, uh, <laughs> Australian banks. Right. Australian banks would not provide them the finance to get their development finished. They came out too early, too many bugs. They failed three or four times, became renamed as a kookaburra, uh, became a major part of the telecommunications support system in India uh, as a portable computer there, but died. But it, I'll give you an idea, this is, this is speaking, this is real techno speak here. We might lose some of the audience on it. But if you know, the, we know we, we, these days we have the pen, you have the, uh, what they call it, the P7, the, the, yep. the latest in, Intel chip. The, I7 uh, or the P7. Okay, P7. Well, back in those days, they were called 8088s, 8086s, 80186, et cetera, et cetera. The the chip the IBM came out with was the 8088, which is a hybrid 8-bit, 16-bit bus. This thing, at the same time, came out with the 80186, which was not only uh, a 16-bit input-output processor, so it can handle 2 to the 16 bits of data versus 2 to the 8 in the case of the uh, IBM. Uh, It also had the second generation of the eight and 16-bit bus, not the first. So that was how advanced it was, and it folded. Now, that's a classic case of first mover disadvantage. 
And that commonly happens. Australia makes, of course, it destroys any first movers. But uh, in general, that can often happen. The first mover actually fails. So in your particular example of the crop, that guy might have had to borrow additional money or take out, use additional technology, doesn't quite get it working. He folds, he goes bankrupt. The bloke next door to him buys his farm, but sees the mistakes he's made, uh, takes on the same idea and avoids the mistakes and becomes a profitable one. So that's the nature of competition in capitalism. And that's what we should be teaching our students rather than the nonsense they get out of first-year economics textbooks. But, but what about the role of... So is there a need at all for any sort of government oversight into the, the, the maintenance of fair competition? Because uh, there is that danger, isn't there, that they, uh, they step on uh, companies that might be able to provide a, a, an in- innovative way forward. But on the other side, you've got the unhealthy side where the, there's companies that are not terribly innovative, they just want to squeeze out competitors, and you know they use predatory pricing to do that. We've seen airlines yeah. do that, for, for example. We need to, you know, there needs to be some way of stopping that sort of thing happening because that is just not good for anybody. Yeah, that's true. That's the sort of stuff which they are focusing on. And if you look at the old days of uh, antitrust movements, they began in America in the, in the 1800s against the robber barons, as they were literally known, and quite rightly so, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and so on, who were, would actually who took advantage of railways, generally speaking, to whack railways through country areas. Of course, you know, you have to go from you know, one city to another, you've got to go through a country area. So they'd buy up the land along where they were intending to um, to put the train line, drive out anybody in the process. Uh, when the train line comes up, of course, all, any any towns nearby, boom, the ones that were far away slumped, they owned the land near the new ones. They have to kill a few people. That's you know. You got to break. You got to crack. You know, they also got to crack some eggs to get some Pro- Price of progress. They, mm. they crack skulls in, in America, and that's where the antitrust movement actually began from to stop that sort of predatory and criminal behaviour. So, if we go back to that sort of attitude to what competition policy should be, then it would be ha- have something of a worthwhile role. It's basically you know, saying there's there has to be a level of ethics. You can't just have outright, uh, you know, a law of the law, a law of the wild west. Uh, but what has instead happened is economists have taken over. Oh, we can make this all systematic for you. It all just comes down to whether there's a, a, a lot of firms or, or, a, or, a, or a single large firm. That's all they have to worry about. And therefore, their pressure is, is to create this flat structure where there's all the firms are much the same size. And in fact, when you, that's why I go back to the example of the computer industry. When you look at it, that's not the structure that seems to generate the innovation and, and development that we benefit from as consumers. It's actually the power law structure. The power law. Yeah. So um, I was at a party uh, years ago with a whole bunch of airline uh, yield managers, the people who decide how much airfares are. And uh, as you probably know, on any aircraft, there's, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 different uh, fare mm. structures. But they were looking at the uh, the big promotional fares to Europe. They were all sitting there or standing there having a few drinks and agreeing on what the price was going to be for the uh, for the next summer season. Uh, and uh, presumably deciding that they're going to undercut some of their competitors. So uh, mm. but but doing it together. So that, that, that's an example, obviously very illegal to do that sort of stuff. And that is an example of where we do need monopolies commissions to step in and, and stop that sort of practice, don't we? To some extent, but like, for example, that's if you look at Scoot, the development of Scoot Airlines recently. That's another one that's using an innovative pricing structure uh, to actually undercut the market. So I, I would be more interested in what happens in terms of how they treat their employees, because a, a lot of what occurs in terms of cost cutting is actually cutting back on the wages of people you hire. So you actually go from having you know, well-paid um, airline pilots to poorly paid airline pilots. Frankly, that's one of those industries I want to see people paid a lot of money in. I yeah, do, yeah. I do yeah, not want the sure. person... 
I don't want the person that's residing with the 300 people land safely at an airport to be exhausted because he had to spend the previous night uh, working in a in a, a, a bar somewhere to pay the mortgage. So um, you often find that those so-called competitive advantages and, and lower cost organisations often do it by squeezing wages. And I'd rather look at a, a competition policy looking at a living wage for the workers as well as... Um, any signs of predatory behaviour, but let's get away from this simplistic notion that it's just the number of firms that matters. And I'll give you a little um, illustration there. A good friend of mine, Paul Unrond, who's a, a top-class modeler in um, multi-agent models, Paul was asked to do an argument for BT in England uh, against competition policy in England because they were trying to break BT up. And the argument that they said was, is it true that... that um, the more firms, the lower the price, the better the market system, because that's what neoclassical theory teaches. And what Paul did was build a lovely little model of a, um, a industry where you could compete on two dimensions. You can compete on price, you can pre-compete on quality. And the, he then ran numerous simulations of this very, very simple model. It's quite easy to understand the logic of it. Um, and what happened with every, every time period, there was a chance for new competitors to come in and they could choose some combination in that uh, quality, quality versus price space. And in doing thousands and thousands of simulations, uh, the basic rule came that so long as there was more than one surviving, and most of the time there was, you got what we'd call a competitive outcome, good, low prices and high quality. Uh, it wasn't the case that it only got low prices and high quality with lots of firms, the surviving. It came down to just more than one. Yeah. And uh, and that's the basis of the argument that the BT made. So long as we have more than more than one firm in the industry, the pressure from a rival will mean that we have to innovate and we have to keep our, cost, our price, prices reasonable. And, and fundamentally, that's what's happened. Uh, but if you look at what happened with the dismantling of, um, what's it called, the old American Bell, Bell Industries? Uh, that dismantling was done more by economists than by engineers. And what you got as a result of it was incredibly expensive interchange costs and very unreliable interchange facilities between the various providers. So that making a telephone call in, in America used to be a real case of r r Russian roulette. This is either get a workable connection or not uh, across, country, across, uh, across cities. So we, we need to get away from the myths that economists teach and, and people believe that they go through a first-year economics course and get to some real-world assessment of how markets actually operate, what competition really means for consumers, and then what do we do to prevent the, the elements we do know of bastardly behaviour that can occur. What about uh, governments and monopolies then? And then we, we, let's look at this in two ways. First of all, where, there's, uh, where there are monopolies, and perhaps there could be competition, but we have monopolies because they're seen as being in the, in the public good. So you gave the example, uh, you know, supplying power to the home. You know, you only want one of those. But there are public services like garbage collection that's done by my local council. They decide who does it. Should, but should I be able to decide, rather than having the council doing it, should I be able to say... Uh, I'm going to choose somebody who does it, uh, somebody who might do it cheaper, and uh, and you know that could potentially bring my council rates down. I mean, we we're left to because of because the decision is made and we don't have any choice. The council picks the monopoly supplier for my area, and is are the ways and would it be more healthy no. if you tried to introduce competition into in some of these? Well, areas? That, that's one of the areas we need to look at because, for example, I used to live near Redfern in in, in Sydney, and Redfern Council had a had a daily garbage collection, I think it was. I might be wrong about how frequent it was, but it, maybe even the council uh, name. It may have been a, a, like Alexandria. But one of the councils had a daily 
garbage collection and I asked somebody as to why this was the case and mm. I was told that it's because to secure the votes on the council uh, they would hand out uh, you know encourage people to go and vote at the local council election of course it was optional I think uh, and vote for the particular candidate and the way they'd make sure people would reward they'd give them jobs in the garbage trucks so they simply <laughs> needed that many garbage trucks to, to, to make up for all the faith is it to be handled out to get so you do get that sort of behavior yeah. and certainly at local councils i think that's one of the areas where you can certainly see a lot of you know, low, low low grade corruption occurring so you do occasionally want something of a control at that level but generally speaking uh when you see the same which is the large-scale infrastructural element that simply you only can have one of like a one railway between two cities or uh, or one sewerage collection, um, one power in, out, outlet coming into your home and so on, uh, it tends to be the case that that's better run by a government uh, and put good engineers in charge of it yeah. and make sure that they get enough of a budget to improve it over time. I only need make a comparison for anybody who lives in London uh, between what happens in, in, this, in this city, in this country with the state of the railways versus what you see on the continent. And we went the you know, the privatised privatised replies, and that was all going to be really great, and and you know, but we're going to get much cheaper fares, much more efficient, much better yada yeah, yada right. yada. Forty <laughs> years after the whole thing began, look at it. You know, the yeah. fares are twice what they are on the continent. The trains are crap. Well, here's uh, the. They don't arrive. They, we're sorry to announce that you know. Well, on the, Southern Rail particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most innovative thing you've got is the innovative announcements and reasons why things are slow. I mean, for God's <laughs> sake, I got an email yesterday telling me the trains are going to be slow because they're going to be leaves on the line. Yeah, that's an old one. Now, that's an old one. But look at that. That is in the history of England. No, but isn't that because governments got confused with the idea of competition when, in fact, what they were doing was, was creating local monopolies? So when when, when British exactly. Rail was sold off, they created a exactly. number of rail companies. But if you're if you're in Brighton, yeah. you want to go to London, you're on Southern Rail. That's the only choice you've got. And, is, and, and actually, exactly. isn't the danger there that, that local monopolies will actually push prices higher because each company has to compete for workers? So if I drive trains, I have a choice of who I go to now. Yeah, but that's the trouble. It, 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 it is a case that when you've got a physical infrastructure like that, you simply can't get the whole myth of competition in the first place. And that's what I see happening in the university sector as well. People who are beholden to this first-year economics way of thinking, which looks nice on a little piece of paper with two intersecting lines and, you know, one dot slower than the other dot, so therefore that's a better situation. In the real world, it's a total myth, uh, and it leads to asinine, but frankly, asinine decisions. So my favourite right now is the decision of the first First of all, the Australian government to introduce, to remove what they had were caps on the number of places that a university could offer for different courses, deregulate because that means the market can rule. That's obviously going to be better. Now, the reality is high school students have got no idea of how different universities behave. Uh, they simply go to the one that has the highest status. And of course, humanities are incredibly cheap to deliver. Uh, you need, you, you, to add one more humanities student, you need one more seat in the lecture theatre that's empty. Uh, that's much easier than adding an extra STEM subject where you might need an extra test tube or an extra uh, you know, um, defibrillator. Uh, so it's, it's, it's very easy to expand humanities numbers and therefore consequently, humanities at all the other universities collapse, the one at the top university is focused and therefore the humanities got shut down at all these regional universities universities. That's why I got shafted at the University of Western Sydney back in Australia. And the same thing has been done over here, which is cutting back the numbers for anybody who's not in a Russell Group University or, or Oxbridge and making their humanities programs far less viable, which is putting, which may mean those universities shut down and out of an attempt to increase competition, you get less universities and less diversity. So let's, let's go for an, another angle. 
uh, oil cartels. Uh, the price of oil is entirely dependent on the level of supri- supply, which is dependent on OPEC countries and, and other countries agreeing on how many barrels of oil are going to be supplied. Mm-hmm. Is that, a, is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? We seem to accept it, but it is, uh, in effect, uh, uh, oligol- not monopolistic, but oligopolistic, if that's the right <laughs> word, behavior. Um, and, uh, and yet it seems acceptable, but it distorts the market, doesn't it? Well, and the market is a distortion. It's <laughs> the first thing. Markets, markets all vary, and the whole idea that this is one one size fits all for markets is, is another myth. Uh, think about the market for housing. That's an auction market. The market for fish. That's a Dutch auction. The market for shopping. That's a a, 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 a declarative price market. You never go into the supermarket and haggle over the price of muesli. So there are various markets that evolve for different different situations, and we should be simply realistic about that as well. Well, which of course we're not right. So, so you're saying it just is. That's just the way it is, and it, it's yeah. It, and it's, it's and, and also, like we, we know, we know OPEC breaks down, and because again, this is part of the innovation factor. If OPEC hadn't existed and put prices up, then you might not have had the development of fracking. Although I think that's particularly positive development, but yep. it gave an opportunity for a new technology to be devised. And don't forget that OPEC arose because of another monopoly, which was the what they called the Seven Sisters, the seven big oil companies that dominated the ownership and the uh, mining of oil around the world and kept the prices uh, that they paid to the Arab states extremely low. That's what led to the, uh, after the Yom Kippur War, that led to uh, uh, the OPEC actually forming and quadrupling prices back in, what, 70, 73, 73, and then doing the same thing again in, in, in 79. Now, that so the cartel itself arose out of a response to a corporate cartel, which was keeping down the prices they were paying to the states in which they were mining the oil. So, um, you know, it, that's one of those cases where there's predatory, predatory behaviour on both sides of the equation. Yeah, but when OPEC does get together and say, oh, look, we're going to limit production, that pushes oil prices up so they, in the short term, they make more money. I mean, we, we do get back to the point that we, we made initially. It also drives innovation, doesn't it? Because somebody else then comes along yeah. and says, well, maybe not fracking, but uh, all of a sudden it, it becomes more realistic to invest in renewables. It makes them more exactly. affordable. So that's exactly. So, so again, we have another example of where what is seen as being uh, behavior that economics might say is wrong is actually beneficial to the economy. In the long run, it, it, in the it, long it, run. Not, not, not immediately, but it certainly means that people can think about producing um, more high-tech. Actually, that's another issue we should discuss in a future podcast, mate, and that is the whole issue of, of energy and how do we get it and what's the consequences likely to be for the economy. And we have to shift from oil, which is enormous energy density and is very easy, was very easy to, to mine, very low cost of energy and to get energy out. To are changing right. over to renewables, where it's much you've got to build the thing in the first place before we can extract the energy, right. and so, therefore you have a higher cost of production. Save that then, because we will do that in a future podcast. Because we've got uh, well, we've got forever, haven't we? Till we die, basically. We do, uh, we <laughs> do. As long as our voices don't fail. So uh, that's never going to happen. So, 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 just in conclusion, then, I mean, what? Uh, where does this leave us? If you're, I mean, from a from a government stance, from an economist's point of view, what is the best approach to take in handling competition? Where where, where should the focus be or do you just say it is what it is let companies behave the way they want to behave i would actually hand over the management of competition policy to evolutionary biologists because they have got a far more realistic idea of the the existence of niches 
of a variety of competitions spanning a whole range of ecosystems niches rather than just being you know there's there's spam for food you have spam for dinner and you can have water for, for drink uh, they know there's a bit of variety there thanks very much so they've got a far better handle on how, on how a competition actually occurs in ecosystems and if we are borrowed from them rather than letting economists get inside there we'd have a better system we do need a bit of it uh, there are certainly predatory behavior but I think competition policy's got completely out of hand and the reason it's been a total disaster is because the people who run it are believers in conventional economics and you couldn't get anybody more deluded than that all right so we'll give it to evolutionary biologists instead uh, all right look, look next time we're going to look at debt and uh, growth should we should governments actually be uh, funding growth by building up debt this uh, might be very relevant with Donald Trump uh, planning big growth plans uh, for the US we'll talk about that next time thanks for now okay mate good to talk and that is the debunking economics podcast uh, thanks for listening I'm Phil Dobby that was Steve Keen we'll see you again next time flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more one of these plans may be right for you if you're say between jobs coming off your parents plan turning a side hustle into a full hustle or even missed open enrollment want more flexibility find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com if you've enjoyed listening to debunking economics uh, even if you haven't you might also enjoy the y curve each week roger hearing and i talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week it's lively it's fun it's informative what more could you want so search the y curve in your favorite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen